We're in Matthew chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn there. You'll want to pull out your notes today or fire up your app so you can take notes. There are a couple sermons um, in the course of your Christian life that you'll want to remember because you're going to use them again and again and again. This is going to be one of those. So grab your notes, take good notes, or fire up your app and make sure you're taking good notes. Matthew 19, we're five weeks into a series called Broken People sexuality and marriage. Jesus is teaching us why people are broken, why marriage is broken, why sexuality is broken, and the gospel of grace, how he steps in and redeems all that. It's been a wonderful journey of four weeks through Matthew 19. We're in the fifth week. Um, I want to remind you of this. We start not only a brand new series on April 2nd. April 2nd is kind of like a friend day at Journey. April 2, we're calling Baseball Sunday. Um, We always look for Sundays to celebrate random things at Journey. Um, And we have found that the start of the Major League Baseball season and the start of the NFL football season are fun days to wear your jersey, wear your gears, have your softball players and your baseball players wear their uniforms that day. Slugger will be here. We'll be taking pictures, um, you know, out in our atrium at a photo booth. The reason we do those Sundays, though, is not so you can have a more enjoyable experience at church. The reason we do those Sundays is because some of you have people in your baseball softball communities that you've been trying to figure out, how can I maybe get them to church? This is a Sunday that, that we do so you can invite your friends to church. Um, our goal, if they would come on Palm Sunday, which is April 2, is that they would hear enough to be interested to come back at Easter, where we will very clearly and very powerfully present the gospel. So we're going to bring in Slugger. We're going to wear our jerseys. We're going to have popcorn, peanuts, and Cracker Jacks in the atrium. It's going to feel like you're at a baseball game that day. You are responsible to bring your friends who might not know Jesus or who do and maybe are disconnected from church so that together we can have some impact on April 2. Next couple weeks, we'll be in the series in Matthew 19. Today, we're going to be in just three verses. We spent Four weeks in the first 12 verses, over and over and over and over again. This week, we're going to be in verses 13, 14, and 15. And here's what it says. Then, you might circle the word then, we'll talk about it. People brought, circle the word brought. I'm going to pull out five words and talk about them for five minutes. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder, you might circle that word, hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands, circle those two words, his hands on them, he went on from there. Let me start today by giving you five words from this text in five minutes that's going to set our direction for what we're going to learn today. Let's start with the word then, the first word in verse 13, and let's kind of pick up the meta-narrative of this text. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus' non-affirming views of his culture's broken views on broken sexuality and marriage did did not keep parents from bringing their kids to Jesus. So we're going to jump like right into the deep end today. I'll summarize the first 12 verses, but what you need to understand is after Jesus taught the biblical foundations of sexuality, of marriage, of gender, after that, after his non-affirming views of culture's broken views, specifically of divorce 2,000 years ago, on broken sexuality and marriage, the parents brought their kids to Jesus. Now, the dilemma of the day 2,000 years ago in Matthew 19 was when you should get divorced. That was the broken thing in people, marriages, and cultures. When can you get divorced? There were two major opinions. One was you can get divorced for any reason at any time. Literally, there is a popular rabbi from the first century whose writings have succeeded that said if your wife burns the toast, you can divorce her. 
So that was one of the popular ideas. Can you get divorced if your wife burns the toast? That was a question asked to Jesus. Another popular rabbi said you can only get divorced if your wife has an affair and she leaves you forever. So they came to Jesus and was like, which one do you, which one do you think is right? When should we get divorced? And Jesus took their question that wasn't really a question. They were not looking for an answer. They were looking for angst. They were not looking for direction. They were looking for division. Jesus took their answer and he said, you're asking the wrong question. You're trying to figure out what biblical truth is based on what is happening. We always base biblical truth on what did happen in the beginning, what was happening. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. And Jesus laid out not only God's design for gender and sexuality and marriage and people, but in the course of that, he reminded us that when you really want to know what biblical truth is, when you really want to know what God's purpose is, you got to go backwards, not forwards. You don't start with the way things are. You start with the way things were. So we walk through the way things were back in the beginning. We walk through hard-hearted sexuality. God's, Jesus said, God doesn't want you to get divorced, but he allowed it because so many of you were hard-hearted sexually. We talked through hard-hearted marriage, and Pastor Daniel Floyd was here and gave us some tips on how to mitigate maybe a hard heart in our marriage relationships. Last week, Marcellus was here, and we learned that we not only shouldn't question God about our sexuality, but we should honor God in our sexuality, and we learned about the grace of singleness and a really, really powerful message, a really important month as we've unpacked some things at Journey. Today, the dilemma in our culture is not about when do you get divorced. The sexual dilemma in our culture that's facing the church is what do we do with members of the LGBTQ community who want to follow Jesus and be disciple? What does the Bible say? And what as a church are we going to do? And how as parents and grandparents do we talk to our kids about something maybe we never even experienced in our lifetime? Great question. What we need to know is that after Jesus answered that question, affirming scripture and showing grace to brokenness, after that, people still wanted to bring their kids to Jesus. Listen, I don't know in this day and age if every church is safe to bring children to who are struggling in the area of sexuality. And I do not know that every Christian is safe to bring children to who are struggling in the area of sexuality. But please listen to me, hear me clearly. Jesus is the safest person in heaven or on earth to bring our kids to who are struggling sexually and say, connect to him. Amen? So like after everything Jesus taught, parents were still lining up and they're like, all right, we, we know you kind of gave a hard message about sexual things, but we still want to bring our kids to you. I think that's important to know because mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, you have to believe this or you might actually keep your kids away from Jesus. Look at the words brought and hinder. When it comes to children connecting to Jesus, Jesus tells us adults are usually responsible for bringing them close or keeping them away. Let me say this in 2023. Parents, those of you who are struggling with spiritual tension in the area of trying to figure out what you believe about sexuality, your spiritual tension may be causing spiritual absence from your kids from Jesus. Those of you who said, I'm going to take a year off church and kind of figure this out, you're taking a year off of Jesus from your kids. Those of you who have walked away because you've had a bad experience, you're taking your kids away from Jesus. Like, you need to make sure you're bringing your kids to Jesus, not hindering them. Because the spiritual distance that you are struggling with in your soul might be right now creating a spiritual disconnect in the lives of your children that they'll, maybe never, they'll never be able to reconnect in their future. So we need to know that parents, usually grandparents, adults are the ones who usually bring kids to Jesus or keep them from coming to Jesus while they're figuring out their own stuff. We also have to understand in the hands of Jesus, kids are safe. In the hands of Jesus, every one of our children is artwork, not an accident. 
What you need to know when you bring your kid to Jesus, Jesus will not look at them and tell them that they're an accident. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, we were all born dead in our sin. But Jesus made us alive, and he didn't just make us alive spiritually. He changed everything about our life. He would say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourself. It's the gift of God, and it's not by works so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. That word literally means artwork. We are God's masterpiece of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we know when we bring our kids to Jesus, not only will he affirm his love for them, he will let them know that they are his artwork and he has great plans for them. He takes them from spiritual death to spiritual life. He will always affirm, listen closely, that their spiritual image is really who they are, not their sexual identity. He will always affirm that a relationship with him will prove to be more impactful, more lasting, more important than any sexual relationship they will ever have in their life. We know we can trust Jesus with our kids spiritually. The question today we want to answer is, can Jesus trust you with his kids spiritually? We know our kids are safe with Jesus. I don't know that anyone in here would say our kids are not safe with Jesus. The question we're going to ask and try to answer today is, like, can Jesus give his spiritual children to you and know that you're going to take care of them okay. When we entered this series a month ago, we said this would be a series that probably would cause people to leave our church every week, and I believe probably it has. We said we are gonna be a church that believes the word of God and behaves like the son of God. And if you are a church that does not believe the word of God, we are probably not gonna be a church that you'll be able to stay at long-term. But if you're, if you're not a Christian who's able to behave like the son of God and act in grace towards people who are struggling in sin, we're probably not gonna be your church either. And we said this series, unfortunately, would probably drive members who are adults in the LGBTQ community away, not closer. And we said the reality is that is probably 25 or 30 years of the church not addressing this issue at all or addressing it poorly. So we said the goal of this series is probably not going to be people in the gay community who are between the ages of 25 and 55. The goal of this series is probably going to be the 800 children and students in our church this week who will minister to under the age of 18 who are going to come to their mom and dad with sexual confusion and say, what do I do? Because the church has stayed silent, parents don't know how to answer that question. And this conversation should not be had from a stage. This conversation should be had in your kid's bedroom. But parents don't know how. So we said the primary goal of this series is not for the here and the now, but it's for the you and your kids and your grandkids in the future. And what we're going to look at really today is anyone who wants to disciple anyone in the next generation, when the question of hard-hearted sexuality, when the question of broken sexuality comes up, what do we do? We want to learn to parent like Jesus because in this text, he's parenting, he's teaching, he's loving, and he's parenting. What are we going to learn as we learn to parent like Jesus? I'm going to give you five tips. I wish I could give you 20, but it would take hours and hours to be here, and I'm hoping I can give you five in less than an hour. What are we going to learn from parenting, about parenting from Jesus? Tip number one, we're going to learn when it comes to this area of broken sexuality, we have to begin in the Garden of Eden. I believe every sexual question that you would ask of Jesus would have the exact same answer. In Matthew 19, the question was this, hey, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? I believe that the question was, hey, Jesus, what do you think about adultery? Hey, Jesus, what do you think about premarital sex? Hey, Jesus, what do you think about the gay 
community. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about pornography? I believe his answer would be the same to all of them. He would say, before we address the problem of broken sexuality, let's go back to the purpose of humanity and their engagement with God. Jesus always takes us back to the Garden of Eden to begin this conversation about sexual things. So they came to him and said, tell us about divorce. Jesus said in verses four and five, haven't you read? At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a woman will leave her father and a man will leave his wife and they'll be united and the two will become one flesh. Jesus would remind us before he dug into brokenness that the point of humanity is to live in a thriving relationship with God. The point of gender, sexuality, and marriage is to live in a thriving spiritual relationship with each other that honors God. And we would learn if we went back to the Garden of Eden that sin broke the world. And because sin breaks people, listen really, really carefully. Because sin breaks people, it breaks our understanding and our feelings about our sexuality. Because sin breaks people, watch this, it breaks how we understand ourselves sexually and how we feel about ourselves sexually, like immediately. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, watch this, the eyes of them, both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was what? Thank you for saying it out loud, Robin. Um, it, listen, you can say <laughs> naked in church. So we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna do it together, and we're going to do it better. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was... Naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve's first awareness about their sin was their sexuality. Notice they didn't say we're hiding because all of a sudden we want to steal things now. We know you don't want that. They didn't say we're hiding because we want to cheat and lie. And we know you wouldn't want that. They didn't say we're hiding because we want to go cuss and drink and smoke and we knew that would let you down. They didn't say we're hiding because... We're now like racists in our spirits. No, they said we feel vulnerable about who we are sexually. And it just makes us feel distant from God. The very first vulnerability in humanity that sin causes is this vulnerability about who I am sexually and how things will work for me. Because people are broken spiritually, they will be broken sexually. So we must parent with what I call a biblical worldview of sexuality that comes from the Garden of Eden. And I believe the Garden of Eden gives us two foundations for how to parent, grandparent, disciple in this area of sexuality. First, I think every parent should be saying to their child often, Adam and Eve were broken sexually by sin, your mom and dad are broken sexually by sin, and you will experience broken sexuality because of sin. Because you are a human being who was born in sin. This is gonna be a struggle for you, just like it was for me because of Adam and Eve at the very, very beginning. We need to be talking about what our kids might feel, what our kids might desire, what our kids might question, what our kids might do and participate in that don't come from or honor God that are sin and that will lead to a difficult life physically, spiritually, and emotionally. 
And we need to let them know we were there too. I hear so many parents say, man, I, like, I, I don't want my kids to know who I used to be spiritually. Please understand the goal of parenting is not for your kids to think a lot of you spiritually. It's for your kids to think a lot of Jesus spiritually. Yeah. Amen? Like the, like the goal of you parenting is not for your kids to think you are the savior of the world or that you are righteous. Actually, the more they know about your story and they see good spiritual things in you, the more they should think about Jesus. I love what the apostle Paul says to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.15. Hey, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And man, like I think I'm, I, th I think I'm the worst. So dad, you ought to be telling your kids before they looked at porn what that looked like in the temptations you had in your life. Moms, before your daughters begin to go through uh, issues with their body image or modesty or immodesty or awkwardness, you ought to talk about what you went through. Before your kids ever go to a high school dance, you ought to talk about maybe some of the mistakes you made at your high school dance or about some of the awkward things that happened in late adolescence or middle school because you say, well, no, 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 Christian, if I do those things, it'll make my kids want to sin. No, 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 sin will make your kids want to sin. Doing those things will make them want to talk to you after they sin because they'll think they're understood, they'll think they're loved, they won't feel alone, and for some reason, we have put everyone in the Bible and everyone they know spiritually in like an other category. There's people who struggle with sin, and then there's like Christians, so they don't know what to do when they struggle with sin. So we have to begin our parenting sexually in the Garden of Eden. We also have to know letter B, according to the Garden of Eden, our sexual shame and confusion are only safe in the hands of God. You're going to feel weird about your body, about your sexuality, about guys, about girls. You're going to have awkward experiences. You're going to look at things you shouldn't look at. You're going to feel things you shouldn't feel. You're going to question things you shouldn't question. You're going to desire things that will be wrong spiritually. All this stuff's going to be going on. Here's what you need to know. You are always safe running to God. You're always safe running to God. You know how we know that intrinsically we feel sexual shame? Try to answer this question. Where do you think the fig leaves were on Adam and Eve? I, yes, I believe they were on their privates. Thanks, Steve. Um, you know, the, like, the Bible doesn't say, right? Like, do we think they were capes? Like, like flowing off their back? God, this is so weird, but I got a cape. No, probably not. Probably not capes. Do we think they were shoes? I mean, the Bible doesn't say. Um, do we think it was a hat? It's like, God, I felt so weird, but I made this hat. And now it's like, I feel better. Um, do we think they were sleeves? You remember like in the aerobics day of the eighties, like the leg warmers, like, do we think they were, do we think they were leg warmers around their shins? I think probably they were like right in here and like maybe like around here. Why? Because that's where I would put them. Why? Because I am broken and ashamed sexually. And I know what the world is not supposed to see of me. Think about this. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 23, parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. He never names them because everyone knows them. Because if you are human, you are broken sexually. And you have shame and you have confusion and you want to stay hidden as long as possible. We have to teach our kids that while that's unspiritual, it's very natural. And they have to run to Jesus with those feelings. Why? 
Because 1 Corinthians 1 says sexual sin is different and it's deeper. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul will say. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So we have to tell our kids you're broken sexually and that brokenness is gonna lead to a ton of shame and confusion. You're gonna hide from people. Most of all, you're gonna hide from God. So it happened in my life. Here were the things your mom and I struggled with. And like, we're gonna walk hand in hand through this. So we always keep running to God. Because we're broken spiritually, we're gonna be broken sexually, but our sexual sin and shame and confusion is always safe in the hands of Jesus. Tip number two. We don't just go back to the Garden of Eden, but we believe the gospel in the Garden of Gethsemane. I love this picture that the Bible provides. It's like a second chance to get it right. See, if you've read the entire Bible, our story doesn't end with a perfect man in a garden interacting with God and getting it wrong. Our story actually begins with a perfect man in a garden interacting with God and getting it right. Amen? Like there was a second perfect man in a second garden who was given a second chance to trust God with what God wanted and he got it right and it changed the world. Adam was a perfect man in a garden with God facing eternal life if he would just trust God and he didn't. Jesus was a perfect man in a garden with God facing imminent death if he trusted God and he did. One man's life, Adam, brought death to the world, while one man's death, Jesus, brought life to the world. So now we no longer live for ourselves, we live for Jesus, because the second man in the second garden finally got it right and proved to us what it looks like to trust God. It's why we have to teach our kids to trust Jesus and his word with their sexuality. You've heard me say it over and over in this series, sexuality is always a trust problem before a lust problem, before we ever act on anything. We have to disagree with what God says about who we are and whose we are and how we honor him. And once we can no longer trust that we can be fulfilled living the way we want to live, then we have a lust problem, but only after we have a trust problem that says God is wrong. As a Christian, if Jesus is our savior, the scriptures have to be our worldview. We do not get the option of having Jesus as our savior, but not having the scriptures as our worldview. So we look kind of micro at a biblical worldview through the Garden of Eden. Let's expand beyond Eden and look at the biblical worldview of sexuality. Like, what does the Bible say about sexuality? We don't just have Eden and Gethsemane. We have a lot of the Bible in between, a lot after. So what are we gonna learn? A couple things, letter A, you are defined by your spiritual image, not your sexual identity. Jesus is going to teach us that we are defined by our spiritual image, not our sexual identity. And listen, we must teach our kids and our grandchildren and those people that we're discipling, we must teach them the dual tracks of life that we're going to live on. The world will always say one thing, and usually Jesus will say something else. Christianity is counterculture. You have to understand in life, the world will say one thing. Jesus is almost always going to say something different. We are Jesus people. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, what are people saying about me? And they gave him a lot of answers that were close, but that were wrong. And then Jesus says, but what do you say? What do you say about me? And Peter said, well, like, you're the Messiah. Like, you're, like, you're the only one who can give life. In the area of sexuality, the wrong question is, what does the world say? but we do need to know they say something. The right question is, what does the Bible say? And we need to know that it says something. And listen, anytime culture and Christ disagree, culture is wrong, 
100% of the time. Anytime the world says this about anything and Jesus says this, the world is wrong. And we have to teach our kids you're going to hear things about every area in life that are just wrong spiritually as Christians. We don't believe that. So we have to teach our kids, you're not defined by your sexual identity. You're defined by your spiritual image. Your sexual behavior will flow from that. We also have to remind them, let her be, that God's plan for you is good, but we can't remind them of that if we don't believe it. And I'm afraid too many Christians don't believe this in 2023. We must remind them that God's plan is good. You say, how could the Garden of Gethsemane be good? Jesus died, but then he rose again. And he offered life to the whole world. We have to see what in the short term looks bad. We just trust that God will make good. We started this entire series in Genesis 1 and 2 looking at life the way that God intended it to be. And life as a result of sin and how it broke it. And we said, which one of these worlds do we want to live in? Life as God intended in Genesis 1 and 2. Spiritual intimacy and trust with God. Work that brings shalom, which is inner peace and satisfaction. Selflessness in marriage. The blessing of family. Innocent trust in sexuality. They were like, when do we get divorced? And Jesus was like, why would you be asking about divorce instead of marriage? Look at what God has planned for you if you would live his way. And he would say, but a lot of you get divorced because your hearts are hard. The legacy of hard-hearted sin is spiritual separation and a lack of trust in God. Work that breaks shalom. Now instead of work filling me up, it empties me every day. Selfishness in marriage is no longer about you, it's about me. The burden of family, not the blessing of family, but the burden of family and shame and confusion and sexuality. We have too many Christian parents, listen closely, who are trying to figure out how to manage the legacy of hard-hearted sin rather than trusting Jesus and saying, run towards life as God intended it. I know it'll be hard. It might look like death at the beginning, but Jesus resurrects dead things. In May of 2011, a F5 tornado hit Joplin, as I'm sure all of you remember who live in the Midwest. We as a church had only been meeting like four months um, in Bible studies. We'd never had a public service. We only had about 50 people on our team, but we were serving our community and we were serving our area and they called us and said, hey, is there any way that you guys could help get supplies to the first responders? Um, and 36 hours after the tornado, because they'd run out of bottled water in the Springfield kind of Joplin area, we rented a box truck with a lift. We bought thousands of bottles of water, and we drove it down to Joplin. And 36 hours after the tornado hit, we were on the ground giving water to first responders. We had to get a special pass to go in because they'd not finished clearing bodies out of houses, schools, the Home Depot. So we were not allowed to approach any structure, but we were allowed to be in the disaster zone to give water to people who were helping. And if you have never been in the aftermath of something like an F5 tornado 36 hours after it happened, it, it is, it was one of the most unsettling moments of my life. I expected to see um, houses that had been knocked down in piles. Instead, they were gone. Like we drove into neighborhoods that the only way you knew there were neighborhoods is because there were driveways but there weren't piles of houses. Like, there was nothing. They were, they were gone. Like, everything had blown away. No trees, no grass, no homes. It was the most unsettling thing that, I've, that I'd ever seen in my life. And in some areas of town, there'd be a path of the tornado on one side of the street, and everything's gone. And on the other side, everything is like normal, and you wouldn't have even known that it rained. We went through one neighborhood where some homes were completely gone, and some were still standing. And there was a house. I'd never seen anything like it. 
And like I could, if I could draw, I could draw it today perfectly. There was a house that had been ripped in two. Um, any of you have daughters who ever had a dollhouse? Like, it looked like a dollhouse. Like, you could, like, it just had been ripped in two. One side of it was kind of rubble. A lot of it was gone. But standing open to the backyard was a bedroom that was meticulous. Like, half the house was gone, but there was a bed that was made with the pillows on the bed. And there was a closet door standing open, and all the clothes were still hanging in the closet. And it was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. There are some Christian parents who in the area of sexuality are looking at that bedroom on that half of a house thinking, we could live there. Like, here's a bed. It's a closet. Like, I know most of the house is gone, but let's just figure out how to make it work. Christian mom and dad, when you are not telling your kids to run after God's sexual plan for them, you're living in a house that has already been destroyed and condemned. And you're trying to make them comfortable in it. So we have to believe what Hebrews 11.40 says. I love this verse, and I think parents should say it to their kids over and over and over and over and over. God has something better for you. Like, I know what all your friends are doing, and I know what the school is saying, and I know what your friends are saying. God has something better for you. Your boyfriend's going to break up with you because you're not going to do something with him after homecoming on junior year. God has something better for you. The sorority that you're going in wants you to do all these things and dress this way to be a part. Like, God has something better for you. You're struggling in, in identifying with the gender you were born with. God has something better for you. God has something better for you. Parents, you can't say it until you believe it. And it will take trust that on the other side of the cross, there is a resurrection day. But Gethsemane teaches us to do that. We also, letter C, see that holy sexuality and sexual immorality are defined by Scripture. It's really pretty clear. This is not a gray area. This is a black and white area, biblically. We defined holy sexuality a few weeks ago with Professor Christopher Yuan, who's a professor at Moody Bible Institute, as chastity and singleness and faithfulness in biblical marriage. Give us a summary of what the Bible teaches sexually. Here is holy sexuality. The word holy means set apart. Here's how people who are trying to honor God with their sexuality live. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. I said when I gave you this definition, there was a lot of things that were sexually immoral, but it would be easy to remember the two things that were right rather than all the things that were wrong. However, I feel like I shortchanged you because the things that are wrong are like pretty black and white in scripture. And I've given you a chart today inside your bulletin that I actually keep in my phone for conversations that I have with people about sexuality, and it's always been beneficial to me. On the inside of your bulletin, you're gonna see this little sheet that just says sexual immorality is defined by scripture. I won't read it all because I don't wanna say some of these things on stage at a church where there are children in the room. But this is what the Bible says about sexual immorality. It's very, very clear. This list is not exhaustive, but it is inductive. Leviticus 18, 19, 20, Deuteronomy 22 and 23, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 2. The Bible says that these do not honor God and these are not God's plan. Why am I showing you this list? How do I use this list? Let me give you, let me give you, um, let me give you four real life conversations and let me tell you my prayer about what I'm getting ready to tell you. I ask God to help me in this moment not to sound condescending to people who have really honest questions in this area. I pray that God would help me to be gracious 
as I unpack real life conversation that I've had with people in our church who just don't know the Bible like I do. I've prayed that God would help me to appear humble and not prideful or arrogant in any way as I talk to you about these areas. But let me tell you why I keep this list on my phone is I have conversations usually with parents who are struggling with their kids in this area. Usually I get questions like this, which are fair questions, incomplete but fair. I'll have somebody say, Christian, doesn't the Bible just say, um, like, don't be gay, don't eat bacon, and don't get a tattoo? And don't we like, not believe that anymore? It's a fair question. It is a fair question, but it's incomplete. The Bible does not just say those things. The Bible gives a very exhaustive list of things that are sexually immoral. And when I pull these out and say, actually, this is what the Bible says about sexual immorality, 100% of the time, people are like, yeah, those things are bad, most of them. So I have this for those conversations. I have this sheet for this conversation. And I, and I have it a lot. Christian, don't you think... God wants my kids or my grandkids to be happy? Like, don't you think God wants them to do what makes them happy? It's a fair question. But I pull out this sheet and say, um, if these things make people happy, should people do them? And 100% of the time, 100% of the time, people say, well, obviously not all of them. So, so, so then that cannot be our sexual ethic. Our sexual ethic cannot be what makes people happy, and by the way, you just told me you do have a sexual ethic. You think there are some things people should not do. And you actually agree with some of what the Bible says. Every now and then, I'll, I'll have a conversation with a person who says this. Can we really take sexual ethics from 3,500 years ago, which is most of the Old Testament, 2,000 years ago, which is the New Testament, and really think those apply to today? So usually, I'll give them something like this and say, you're right. These things... They're not wrong in 2023. And people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Of the 23, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't think we can say that. So I guess what God said 3,500 years ago, a lot of them, most of them, are, are still really wrong. A lot of times I'll have conversations with people who will say, um, there's just no way God knew the culture of America when he wrote scripture. Like if there were a 28th book of the New Testament that was written in the 2000s, it would say a lot of different things. And I'll say, wait a minute. And I always say this to Christians. Aren't you a Christian because you believe Jesus is the son of God? Yeah. Is part of your belief that Jesus is the son of God like the prophecies that were given a thousand years before he came? Yeah. And do you think that like one day he's gonna come back and end all things? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, wait, so, so you think... God knows everything about the past and everything about eternity, but 1776 to 2023, like somehow he was not aware of that? Like, is that what you're trying to tell me? And eventually they think, I don't even believe most of what I'm saying, but it's what culture has said. And then I remind him when culture and Christ say different things, culture is wrong. Amen? Amen? And then I ask him to take the 400-year test. I say, what do you mean by that? And I tell him, well, about 75 years ago, every Christian, every church, would have said all of these were still sin. 
I realize 75 years in, we've backed our way into six or seven of them now that we say are okay. What if 400 years from now, we said all of these were okay? Would you be okay living in a Christian world like that? Because that was the story of Canaan. I hear people say, well, you know, God, if God knew um, what 2023 was like, you know, he would have written different things because, you know, it, it was just different then. People weren't doing bad things then. Did you read this list? God said, I'm casting out the Canaanites because they do all these things. They do all of them. Which is why we as Christians have to be really, really careful what catchphrases we use culturally, what catchphrases we believe culturally, what catchphrases we sing culturally. Sorry, Luke Bryan, I love Luke Bryan, but I don't believe you love who you love and there ain't nothing to be ashamed of. Like, I don't believe that spiritually. As a follower of Jesus, I don't believe that. I don't believe if you're married, you should love somebody else. And I think if you get caught in that, you should be ashamed, especially if it destroys your family and you should be convicted and you should repent. I don't believe everyone should just love who they love. I don't believe if you're engaged to someone that that person should be able to go love all their exes as well. I don't believe that. And I believe you should be ashamed if you're doing that. And I believe you should repent and be convicted if you're a Christian. I don't believe you can just love who you love. I don't believe leaders of a church should love someone who they're not married to, amen? Like, we all believe that one. So why would we say, well, love who you love? Because it's a cultural catchphrase that we've not thought for 30 seconds about to realize, I don't think I believe that. I don't think that's my sexual ethic. I don't want my ninth grade daughter's history teacher to love her. I think that's wrong. I guess I have sexual ethics. These phrases of, I just want people to be happy. No, Jesus wants people to be holy. He believes that will make them fulfilled. If it makes people happy to do all these things, are we good with that? The consensus from all of us is, no. You can't do all these things even if it makes you happy. I mean, if we let people do what made them happy, None of our kids would graduate from kindergarten. None of our kids would ever eat a vegetable. None of our kids would ever make their bed. Like, parents don't believe everyone does what makes them. We don't believe that. That's not our ethic. Why do we say that? If a coach had a team and his goal was for everyone on his team to be happy, they would stink. They wouldn't win one game that they competed in. Not a coach's goal for everyone to be happy. We don't believe that. I hear people say, love is love. No, it's not. Some love is wrong. There's not a progressive Christian in the world who believes a youth pastor should love a girl in his youth group. There's not one who believes the priest should love the altar boy. We don't believe that. So why do we use these cultural catchphrases that slowly tear away at what the Bible says? We have to do better. And we have to help our kids understand those are just sayings that nobody believes. Nobody actually believes any of those. We sing about them, we put them on t-shirts, we make bands, but here, nobody actually believes those things. Just give them a scenario or two and they'll see, oh, I get it, nobody believes those. Now, are there some good questions in there for sure? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to try to address some of those on our Activate podcast in the coming month. If you flip over this sheet, you're going to see in March we're going to release five podcasts because we just, 
I don't want to preach about this forever on Sunday, so we'll be done next week. But I'm going to try to answer why do Christians only follow some of the Old Testament laws, not all of them. It's a good question. It's a fair question. I'll answer that. That'll be released next Sunday. Uh, What is Matthew 19 really saying about divorce and remarriage? We kind of glossed over that, even though the question was about that. I'll talk about that. Tips for a healthy marriage. Tips for a thriving blended family. Like We'll we'll give you some more information. But here's, here's what you need to know. Bottom line. Christians believe that an eternal God has set an eternal sexual ethic and he is fully aware of every culture and civilization in human history. What that man in the garden of Gethsemane got right was trust God because what hurts for a minute brings healing eternally. So we trust the man in the garden of Gethsemane. Tip number three, we're gonna go really fast now. Parents, grandparents, you gotta begin discipleship in the area of sexuality earlier. You say earlier than what? Earlier than you have. Like immediately. Here's what you need to understand. Culture has begun their training of kids in the area of sexuality earlier, so we got to get ahead of it. Amen? Like, like we got to know it's coming and we got to get ahead of it. So two things in the biblical worldview of discipling children. One, as soon as you're able to talk with your children, talk to them about spiritual things. I believe this is how parenting is supposed to work spiritually. As soon as you can talk about anything, talk about spiritual things. Deuteronomy 6 says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. How? Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. As soon as you're able to talk to your kids, talk to them about spiritual things. Spiritual things include sexual things, especially in 2023. Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The Greek word little children there means toddler aged. In Luke 18, it says people brought babies to Jesus. How soon do I start talking to my kids about Jesus things, even in the area of sexuality? As soon as you can have a conversation. As soon as you can have a conversation with them. We got to start earlier. Letter B, parents, Christian parents have to have an intentional discipleship plan with their child's education. The question is never, are we talking about Jesus in our faith life? The question is, how are we talking about Jesus in our faith life? So I'm going to talk about the three primary educational opportunities. And listen, I'm not going to give one is better than other. I'm going to say, if this is your child's educational pathway, this has to be your discipleship pathway in 2023. First, I'm going to start with public schools. It's going to go without saying that all parenting is daily discipleship. But in public schools, probably your discipleship is going to be defensive parenting. And let me say this. My dad was a public school principal most of my life. My little sister is a public school principal in Evanston, Illinois. My brother-in-law is a public school principal in the south suburbs of Chicago. My mom worked in education, public school education, most of her life. I am a public school kid. Some of the best Christian men and women that I know at Journey serve in the public schools of our community and thank God that they do, amen? Like, thank God for the Christians serving in our public school. So I'm not like saying, I'm not like saying you can't disciple your kids in public schools. What I'm saying is you have to understand your role if your kids go to public school and it has to be defensive parenting. You're playing defense against an offense that's on the move. You have to know the danger of the cultural direction. 
Parents are okay putting their kids in dangerous situations if they know that they've done enough to help their kids survive. It's why there's such thing as infant life jackets. It's why they have the monkey leash at Disney World. Like parents are okay doing semi-dangerous things as long as they have control. Parents, it's okay to put your kids in public school, but you better not let them go or let them sink. Because I'm telling you, it is hard right now. I get asked questions all the time about political things of nature. Christian, what do you think about the don't say gay bill in Florida? Listen, do I think public schools should be educating kids sexually, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grade? No, I don't. Do I think they are and they will? Yes, I do. Say, what are you going to do? Well, I got 2,000 days with my kid before they turn five and a half. I'm going to spend 2,000 days helping them know the right thing so that when they hear the wrong thing, they know it's the wrong thing. Like, I'm not going to ask the public school to disciple my kid. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to play defense every day when they get in the car. I'm going to say, what did you hear today or learn that's different than what I've taught you my entire life? Like, that's what I'm going to do with my kids. Right now, we are in conflict in our local school community over books in libraries that should be in libraries or not be in libraries. And I've had lots of conversations. I was having a conversation with a young dad about the situation and what he felt like he should do. And we were talking about schooling and not schooling. And can you believe this? And I said, let's just call time out real quick. Uh, now, let me say, shouldn't need to be said, but do I believe public schools should have libraries full of books that are gonna get our kids off track spiritually? No, do I think they do? Yes, yes, I do. So I asked his dad, he's like, I send my kid to the school, they got these 60 books, what are we gonna do? And I said, call time out real quick. He said, yeah. I said, do you have the internet at your house? He said, yeah. And I said, then what you have in your library at home is worse than what the school has. You have Netflix? Yeah. I said, trust me, your library is way worse than the school. Are your kids on social media? Yeah. So listen, I understand what you're doing, but if you don't line up some parenting with your politics, you got no hope anyway. Like, what do you do with your kids at home? You tell them that's there, but we don't do that because we're Christians. Parent, I'm, I'm all for, I'm going to talk about it in a minute. I'm, I'm all for bringing Christian influence into schools, but you need to understand that does not exempt you from discipleship as a parent. We also have to understand the trends. The trends these days are the gender dysphoria movement of the last decade that has spread like wildfire. If you are a parent with children or grandchildren in public schools, you need to get this book. It was released in 2021. It's called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle, Transgender Identities of the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. It is phenomenal because it is filled with about a quarter century of research from what's happening in Europe in the trans movement. And the studies, not Christian studies, studies done by doctors and universities over there are telling us that about 88% of adolescents who struggle with gender dysphoria, boys singing their girls, girls singing their boys, 88% of them at puberty grow out of that. That's what, the, that's what the numbers are saying in Europe. Listen to me, parents. Please do not take your son or daughter who's struggling with gender dysphoria to a secular counselor who's going to put them on hormone blockers. Christians don't do that. Don't do that. That's not loving them. That's hurting them. It talks in this book about the rapid onset gender dysphoria disorder that's coming on high school kids. Rapid onset means this. At 15 or 16, they never in their life have struggled with gender dysphoria. And now all of a sudden, they believe they're trans. There was a 5,000% spike in trans females who transitioned to become a, a transgendered male in Europe 
And when they did the studies, not all of them, again, even with the adolescents, nine out of 10, there might be one their whole life that'll struggle. For the vast majority of rapid onset, it was driven by social media, it was driven by rejection, it was driven by friends and kids who did not start hormone therapy and who did not have surgeries, by the time they got through college in their 20s, had transitioned back to their birth gender. Like, we've got to get educated so we can have discussions with kids because our kids are hearing at school, you're a girl, you might be a guy, you're a guy, you might be a girl. And because they don't feel like they can talk to mom and dad, you know where they're going to get their information? What does the internet say? What does social media say? And it's saying the wrong things. It's saying the wrong things. So if I got a public school kid, I'm on defense in discipling. If I have a public school kid, I'm gonna pray for and encourage Christian educators and coaches. I'm gonna thank them for being where they are because if you think it's hard for a high school student who's a Christian to be in a public school, it's 10 times harder for a Christian educator to be in that same public school. We got two really, really good Christian educators sitting in this section over here who help run schools. And I'm telling you, their lives are hard. But I beg them, stay where you are. My gosh, we need you. Please stay where you are. Third, you have to have daily discussions about where instruction or experiences opposed to biblical worldview. You need to talk about it every day. My daughter, Casey, who's 19, is going through the A-plus program at Longview right now. She just finished an eight-week online class. And as a part of that class, she had to take a survey the last week of the semester. And she said, Dad, there were five different choices for my gender at the end of the survey. Well, let's have a discussion about that. What were they? How do you think they got there? How are you going to respond to it? How are you going to react to it? How is a student ministry leader you going to get your middle school girls ready for that? Daily discussions about what are you experiencing that Christians do not believe. And then number four, we got to get in the practice of engaging the process to elect the right school board members. Some of you have kids in public schools that you're railing against and you don't even know the names of the school board members, what they stand for when the next election is. We have to understand how authority and change comes to schools, and as Christians, we got to engage in that process. Some of you need to run for your school board. It won't be easy, it won't be hard, but we need you. We need your voice there, and we need to get behind Christians who are doing that. So that, that's my posture of discipleship if my kids are in public schools. If they're in Christian schools, daily discipleship, because all of parenting is daily discipleship, but this is more partnership parenting. This is a family saying, I'm going to disciple at home. I also want them discipled at school. I don't want to play defense. If I disciple them to a level seven, I want the school to get them to level eight. A couple things if you're going to put your kids in Christian school. Number one, know the dangers of self-righteous legalism and spiritual apathy that live in Christian school kids. I was a student pastor for 10 years. Some of the hardest cases I had spiritually were Christian school kids whose mom and dad sent them to Christian school, but they didn't disciple at home. And they just saw this like tension they developed really, really hard hearts towards the church and things of Jesus. If your kids are in Christian school, pray for and encourage their educators and coaches because they are not making as much as teachers and coaches at public schools. They're probably not making any pension. It's a sacrifice of service to be there doing what they're doing. You still have daily discussions, but now instead of talking about where instruction or experience violated biblical worldview, we're trying to figure out where did it enforce, reinforce biblical worldview. And man, make sure you engage in the process of loving non-Christian families in your daily life. One of the most detrimental parts of Christian schooling is that Christian families kind of click together early and there's no ability to ever do the Great Commission because we never know or love someone who doesn't already know and love Jesus. The third option would be homeschooling. Daily discipleship, because all parenting is daily discipleship, but I call this protective parenting. 
And most homeschool families that I talk to really have Romans 16, 19 as their theme for their young kids. Paul told the church at Rome, I want you to be wise about what's good, innocent about what is evil. They're saying, until my kids are really ready on their own to go do this, I'm, I'm gonna help them. I would say if you're a homeschool family, make sure you have a plan to love and engage and serve the world around you. Don't withdraw and become your own little convent or monastery. Go out and do the work of Jesus. It's interesting, as we look at all of these things, I would say one thing you need to do if you're involved in any of these plans is you need to engage with your local church and bring your kids to church on Sunday. I think maybe the worst thing for discipleship in children is online church. Because we will have this week thousands of people, adults, who go to church this week online, and their kids will sit and play on their iPads. Because we don't have the same level of church online for kids. So it's important to bring your kids to church. I know you can miss and listen on the way to work on Monday morning. What's happening with your kids? Well, you gotta get your kids to church. Our, our children's ministry team has just switched curriculums because they did not believe that we were teaching our kids the Bible and how to use the Bible and the foundational truths of the Bible enough. So as you leave today, we're gonna put one of these in your hands just so you can see what our kids team is doing. What I can guarantee you is if you bring your kids, we will partnership with you. We will partner with you in their discipleship. Before I move on to the last two points, which will take five minutes combined, um, let me give you one pro tip for those of you who are grandparents. Don't let your adult children price themselves out of any of the above options for your grandchildren. Don't let them take so many student loans that they can never be a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. Don't let them do it. They're gonna price themselves out of an option that their child may need spiritually. Don't let them borrow so much money on a three-hour wedding that they can't put their kids in a Christian preschool. Don't let them do it. Like, you have to see that you may need to stay home or you may need to pay for a Christian school in your future. Don't let them price themselves into a life that cannot have Christian education. Don't let them buy a house that demands two incomes forever and ever. Don't let them buy cars that demand two incomes forever and ever. Don't let them go into a financial hole that doesn't allow discipleship for your grandkids. And some of you grandmas and grandpas, instead of waiting till you're dead to give away your inheritance, you need to start giving it away right now in the form of paying for your grandchildren to go to the Christian school your kids would like to send them to, but they cannot. Like we gotta get engaged in the discipleship of our grandchildren. Tips four and five will go fast. Tip four, beware of idolizing marriage. Beware of idolizing marriage. My son Christian just got back from uh, Liberty University for spring break. We picked him up at the airport at 12.30 a.m. on Friday night. Before we gotten home, Danielle already asked him about all the ladies in his life and if he liked any of them and was planning to marry any of them and how long it would be to a grandkid. And because I'd put together this message already, I was thinking, no, 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 no. Like, we cannot make our adult children think until you're not married, you're complete. Until you're not married, you're not complete. I thought Marcellus did such a phenomenal job with this last week that we have to honor and validate and know that God has called some people to live in seasons of singleness. We cannot make marriage the goal. And for those of you who are in here and have a married family, man, what if every family in our church would invite the most faithful adult single they know into their life as the oldest member of their family and once a week had them over for dinner and took them on vacation with them, had them over for holidays and showed your kids, we're, we're a mom and a dad and kids, but man, Tom, Sheila, look how they're thriving as a single person. You can be that too. 
You can be that too and you can honor Jesus. It would not only change our families, it would change how single people in our spiritual community felt loved if we would do that. So maybe a challenge for you there. And then finally, number five, not a series on brokenness, it's a series on grace. Show love and grace to your children as long as Jesus shows it to you. Say, Christian, what would you do if one of your kids or your grandkids was gay? I would love them with every breath in my lungs until God removed me from this earth. I would also believe everything the Bible says about sexuality and honoring God. They may cut me off for my beliefs. I would never cut them off for their behavior. I just wouldn't do it because I've not yet found a time when Jesus has done that to me. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm gonna believe the gospel of grace can be impactful to them. The gospel of grace says two things. One, holy sexuality is a response to God's grace. And it's a wrestling match in the soul of every follower of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit most of their lives. Galatians 5.16 says the Holy Spirit is fighting with your flesh and every day they're gonna be in a fight. We need to make sure we don't tell people this is the list of what it takes to get to heaven. Don't do these and you go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the list to get to heaven is a person and his name is Jesus. It does say, once you meet him, you will not enjoy these things like you used to. You'll be convicted when you do them and you will not be able to live a fulfilled life of peace doing these things and following Jesus. The gospel of grace says God loves you we respond to him by being obedient. We don't work our way to heaven, but God's work in us changes the way we live life. And then second, number two, Jesus parenting in the area of broken sexuality, trusts God's heart, teaches God's direction, and depends on God's help with their children in the area of broken sexuality. The reality is this, parents, unless we believe it, we won't teach it. And we cannot teach it unless we trust God's heart we understand his direction and we depend on his help. Let me close with this. Daylight saving time. Did you know in the 40s, daylight saving time was called wartime? In 1944, Congress passed legislation. They did it in 1918 for World War I, but literally in World War II, they called daylight saving time wartime. There was uh, East, Eastern wartime, um, Central wartime, Mountain wartime, and Pacific wartime. Everybody was reminded we're at war. It's time to do something different. Journey in this area of sexuality, we're in a war, and we gotta fight. The church for too long has stayed silent, or they've not preached with a gospel of grace which has led churches to embrace one of two postures. If you're gay, Jesus is not for you. Or we just don't believe the Bible anymore. Neither of those are life-saving, life-changing lanes of faith. We believe as a church we can believe the Bible and behave like Jesus. And somewhere in that lane of life, we can minister to members of the LGBTQ community who are broken sexually, but they wanna be reborn in the image of God. And here's why it's important for our church right now to be ready. I was in Scotland this summer with some new ministry partners that we'll take a couple trips to this year. A group of our men are going over there to work at a camp. And then later, a group of our students will go run a day camp over there. Scotland has the most progressive, protective, punitive LGBTQ laws in all of Europe. 
which means they are on the far edge of promoting as much sexual freedom as you want. They protect it, and now they are looking at legislation to punish anything that would disagree with that. They are right now looking in the House of Lords at legislation that says, if you're a church, someone comes forward at the end of the service, says, I'm struggling with these thoughts, these feelings, and you pray over them that God would change their heart, they can arrest you, put you in jail. Not preach it, but if you prayed that someone would change, it's against the law. That is already against the law in some provinces of Australia right now. That's where we're headed. Eventually, in the 400-year plan of America, like that's where we're headed. Scotland also has the highest rates of teenage depression, self-harm, and suicide in all of Europe, which means this. It's been proven now there for a generation. Sexual identity and freedom is not the answer to your soul's deepest need. If you have everything you need, all the protections and punishments that you need, and you can embrace who you believe you are sexually, you still on the inside are gonna need more. And when our community of young people has tried everything that they're gonna try, they've listened to everything that culture has to say and they think, I still need more. Journey needs to be here to say, we know Jesus. He changes things. As we close today's service, in preparing for this series in the last couple of years, I've read about two dozen books. I've been trying to pass as many of those on to you as I can. I got a list of seven, they'll be on the screen. You might take a picture. Also, if you got sermon notes, it'll be a QR code. We've been kind of stacking that list as we go. I already told you about Embodied and the trans movement, really, really good. Most of the rest of these books were written by men and women um, who are attracted to men and women, but who love Jesus more and have turned away from a homosexual lifestyle so they can follow Jesus. Sam Alberry, pastor from Europe who pastors in Nashville. What God has to say about our bodies, a man struggles with same-sex attraction to men, but loves Jesus more. Rachel Gilson, born again this way, coming out, coming to faith, and what comes next? A gal attracted to women, but more attracted to Jesus and living for Jesus. This is a fascinating book. Out of a far country, I've told you about Christopher Yuan, Professor Moody. Before he became a Christian, a gay son's journey to God, a broken mother's search for hope. The 60-second deal on this book, a Chinese immigrant family who, when they found out their son was gay, rejected him because of their Chinese culture and would not speak to him. And then the mom and dad became Christians and realized they should love him. And they started praying for him. And he was in prison for drug trafficking, walking down the prison hallway, saw a copy of the Bible in a trash can, picked it up, began to read it, and realized his sexuality was not who he was, it was how he was. And he knew God had something better. Fascinating read for parents, praying for their kids, loving their kids. Jackie Hill Perry, gay girl, good God. Another story um, about somebody who God redeemed. Rose, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, phenomenal story about somebody on the far, far left working hard for gay rights and the gay agenda. Who had a Christian family who just kept inviting her over um, for dinner. Secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. She just for a year hung out with a Christian family who loved her, eventually came to faith. Um, and then if you have teenagers, Preston Sprinkle, living in a gray world, a Christian teen's guide to understanding what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. All these really, really good. Um, as we pray, we just give you three minutes to reflect on what you've heard. I know it's late. I know it's been another long sermon. I'm sorry. I'll get shorter as we get out of this series. If you have to leave uh, before our three minutes is over, just do so quietly so people around you can process these questions. Um, but as they scroll, answer the questions in your own story. Turn those answers into prayers.
And then I'll be back to close this in three minutes. God, open our hearts to our stories, our experiences, and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.